of your sheet this morning, the very first box says the speaker's name. And if you can see my name tag, my name is spelt M-I-K-E. There you go, you've got the first box done. Now, friends, I've just had a text message from Janice Allbutt, one of our regular members here at church. Neil, her husband, has had a fall last night and has broken his hip. So he is in hospital at the moment. Why don't I just pray for Neil uh, before we begin uh, this part of our service together. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray for our brother Neil this morning. Uh, We pray that you might comfort him in the midst of his pain, that you give great wisdom to the medical staff at Nepean Hospital where he is at. And we pray for Janice that you would calm her anxious heart as well. Uh, We pray that Neil will get the treatment that he needs, that uh, the hip replacement operation that he needs will uh, happen quickly and smoothly and that he might be restored to full health and into our fellowship soon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. I was born and raised in this country and so my worldview has largely been shaped by the principles of Christianity. Uh, My father's family was nominally Roman Catholic. My mother's family were nominally Presbyterian Protestant. Our family wasn't super spiritual in any way, shape or form. My parents did drop us off to the local Presbyterian church, so my mum won the debate in the end, where I started to learn about the principles of the Christian faith, but I had no real relationship with God because it wasn't backed up by my experience uh, at home. Then in year 10 in high school, uh, a good friend of mine who incidentally I invited along to church youth group became a Christian and I noticed that his life had started to change incrementally over time to the point that I really started to notice the difference and I said, what's changed for you? And he said, I've become a Christian and I thought, well, aren't I a Christian? But my life hasn't really changed and So it got me starting to think about what do I believe? What does my Christianity look like? And so he and I uh, studied the Bible together after sport on a Wednesday afternoon. And I came to Ephesians chapter 2 where it says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is a gift from God. And then I realized, ah, God has done everything. It's not about my church attendance. It's not about my moral performance. It's about committing my life to Jesus and embracing what he has done Uh, for me. We can't avoid the fact that our world is very religious. Yes, non-affiliated or non-religious thought is growing in Western culture, but you look at that map and you see it's very colourful because it represents all the different religions uh, of the world. We still live in a very religious world. Some parts of the world are more religious than others. The darker shades of red there indicate the people that are most religious. And you can see some of the Western countries like Australia are a lighter shade of red, but our world is still very religious. The latest sociological projections, according to Pew Forum, suggest that by 2050, our world will still be quite religious. Christianity will still be the largest global belief system at about 32% uh, of the world population. But Islam will grow increasingly rapidly over the next 30, 40 years and in 2050 will be about 31% of the world population. The Eastern religions are expected to fall in proportion to the world's population and in an unexpected twist, at least to my mind, is that those who identify as non-religious 
although in numbers they will increase over the next 40 years, proportionally to the world population, it will actually decrease from 16% to 13%. So no matter however you look at it, our world is still very religious and religion is not going away. But you don't need to be an expert to see that religion has caused a lot of consternation and issues around our world. You read, say, Isaiah chapter 40, where the God of the Bible says, who will you compare me to or who is my equal? And it sounds a little exclusive. It sounds a little arrogant, even bordering religious fundamentalism. And hasn't religious fundamentalism caused all the conflict in our world history? What about the billions of other people who believe in other religions and other gods? Are they wrong? Are Christians right in condemning billions of people to an eternity without God because of the country that they grew up in or the culture that they belong to? Christianity can't be true because there are so many other world religions and there can be no peace in the world whilst there is even a hint of religious fundamentalism. Maybe you've heard that statement. How do you respond to that statement? Well, throughout history, there have been a few major approaches to dealing with the religious problem, you might say. The first option that people have taken throughout history is to avoid the issue, avoid the problem. And this is a particularly Australian way of dealing with the problem. You may have heard somebody say, there are two things that we don't talk about, Mike, in our family. It's religion and politics. You know, just avoid the issue. Think that it's not there. But the footy player who refuses to acknowledge the reality of their broken body will not find the answers that they need to return to full form. And it's the same when it comes to religion. Refusing to engage with the reality of our religious world, yes, is an easy way out of answering tough questions, but you'll never find answers that way. The second way that historically people have dealt with the religious problem is to reject them all. John Lennon from the Beatles famously represented this view in his song, Imagine. And I thought about singing the song to you, but I won't. But remember these lyrics from that great song, Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, sing along if you like. No hell below us, above us only sky, and imagine no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You see, in John Lennon's view, in the song Imagine, the way to world peace is by rejecting all religion. Because religion's caused all the conflicts in the world. Once you remove religion, then the world will be at peace. It obviously hasn't worked because the world is still a very religious world, as I said before. But there have been plenty of people that have tried to remove religion. Some have tried to expel religion or control it with a heavy force, a heavy hand. You think of communist Russia or communist China. But did it bring about the utopia that John Lennon dreamed? Did it work trying to politically ban religion? Well, Alastair McGrath in his book, The Twilight of Atheism, says this. The 20th century gave rise to one of the greatest and most distressing paradoxes of human history that the greatest intolerance and violence of that century were practiced by those who believed that religion caused intolerance and violence. 
You see, the great irony of rejecting all religion, if that's the way to world peace, is that, ironically, it's led to more violence and oppression. And one of the other great ironies of this, pursuing this particular view, is the religious story of China. Despite religious suppression over decades, China is expected to be a majority Christian country by 2050. Isn't God interesting the way that he tends to grow his church even in the midst of suppression? A much more subtle approach to this idea of rejecting uh, religion is what we see in our contemporary Western culture uh, and in the media in particular. Uh, You reject religion by promoting no religion and mocking those who are people of faith. Now, there have always been in history people who have mocked Christianity, from the Pharisees standing at the foot of the cross saying to Jesus, he who saved others, but look, he can't save himself, to the modern-day famous atheists and the radio shock jocks of our day, all mocking Christian belief as, oh, you're dumb if you believe in all that stuff that was written down 2,000 years ago. And another voice that is becoming louder in our culture is the voice that says, okay, religion is okay as long as you keep it to yourself. Keep it to yourself in the privacy of your own home, in the privacy of your own mind, but as soon as you want to express, say, your Christian belief in public, in sport, in politics, at work, expect a public crucifixion of your own. And yes, one of the results of this rejecting strategy of religion has been an increase in non-religion as a category. Every census has shown that over the last decade or more. But it's not all one way. There is some research done in the United States at the moment that says that 40% of those raised in non-religious families become religious as adults. So those that grow up in non-religious homes convert either to Christianity or to something else uh, as adults. But 20% of those who grow up in Christian families become non-religious when they become adults. So if that's true here in Australia, and and I don't know whether it is, but it suggests that our non-religious friends are twice as likely to raise children who become religious as those of us who nurture and grow Christian children and families here. It's not all one way. So rejecting religion still hasn't worked. Well, there's been a third option that people have tried to do to resolve the religious problem, and this is to embrace them all. This approach is known as religious pluralism. Kids, write down that word, that's an important word, pluralism, P-L-U, I can't spell it, it's up there. (laughs) It's not up there, but ask your mum and dad there. (laughs) The idea of religious pluralism suggests that each religion is just one of many valid paths to God. Now, how does that work? Well, the argument is put this way. It's argued that the religions of the world contain merely perceptions of ultimate reality, but are not actual descriptions of reality. In other words, each has an element of truth, but no individual religion has grasped the entire spiritual picture. They all point to something common, that is some ultimate spiritual reality that all humanity is being pulled towards, 
but none have a grasp of ultimate reality. Sometimes it's illustrated by the story of the elephant. And some of you may have heard this illustration before. It's a story about an elephant, of course, and a group of blind men whom the elephant allows them to, to, to touch and to hold on to at different points. And there's a person, the blind man, holding the trunk of the elephant. And he says, this creature is long and flexible. It must be a snake. And then there's the blind man holding the leg of the elephant. And he says, no, no, no. It's thick and round. It must be a tree. And then there's the blind man swinging off the ear of the elephant. And he says, no, no, no. It's a fan, what this creature is. So each blind man can only feel part of ultimate reality. And it's argued that the religions of the world are just like this. Each religion has a grasp of reality, but cannot see ultimate reality. Another contemporary example of this is the movie The Life of Pi. I don't know if you've seen this movie. It's an incredible visual display. It's a story about a young Hindu, Indian uh, boy who grows up in, in India and he, and he starts out trying Hinduism and then he's attracted to Islam, and then he's also attracted to Judaism and Christianity. He tries them all. And in many ways, the movie is a, a, a metaphor of how you respond to the religions of the world. So you know the movie, if you've seen it, uh, Pi, the main character, gets stuck in a boat with all these wild animals. And you get to the end of the movie, and he's recounting the story of, you know, life in the boat with a tiger and a gorilla and all these different things. And then people say to him, nobody's ever going to believe that story. And so then he tells another story, and, you know, the animals are metaphors for people that were in the boat with him. And then he turns to the reporter who's taking down notes, and the reporter says, so which story is true? And he says, whichever one you prefer. And so it is with God, is the last line of the movie. That it doesn't really matter what you, whatever you prefer, because you've got a grasp of something, even if you can't see the whole. Now, the idea of embracing all religion kind of sounds quite nice it recognizes yes that there is a spiritual dimension to reality and then on the surface it looks like it encourages tolerance because if we can accept each religion as valid true in their own way then there's no reason to go to war or to have tension and conflict over religion it sounds nice but there are some incredible flaws with this particular view as well. The most embarrassing side effect of pluralism is that it contradicts itself. You know, they would say it's arrogant for one religion to say they have the exclusive claim to reality and truth. But in the story of the elephant and the blind man, there is one person in the story that can see all reality who is not blind. Who is that? Well, the elephant, yes. <laughs> but the person who, who says that religious pluralism, that they're all part of some ultimate picture. The person who's making the argument is claiming that they can see all reality. You see, the irony of the religious pluralists trying to minimise arrogance is that they become what they seek to deny. You see, no matter what you believe, we are all exclusive in some way, shape or form. Yes, it is exclusive to say there is only one way to God.
but it's also exclusive to claim that all religions lead to God because it excludes those who think differently, who think that there's only one way to God or there's only some ways to God. We are all exclusive to some degree. Every truth claim is exclusive to some degree and we will be foolish to close our eyes to the truth claims that are made in every world religion and those that are made in none. It's naive to say that all religions are fundamentally the same because it's simply not reality. It's simply not reality. Islam, Judaism, Christianity are known as monotheistic religions. They're about one God. Hinduism is a polytheistic world religion, many gods. Buddhism doesn't have a personal God. It's more a a way of life, uh, so to speak. Islam says the meaning of life is to submit yourself to the will of Allah. Muslim means one who submits. Buddhism says the meaning of life is to rid yourself of all desire and to find nirvana, not the band and Keith Urban, but this idea of, of nothingness. You rid yourself of desire. Christianity says the meaning of life is to enjoy a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Islam and Judaism say the way to paradise is by obedience to the Torah or to the Quran. Hinduism says the way to Brahma, to being one with the universe, is through a series of reincarnations and earning good karma. Whereas Christianity says the way to paradise, to life with God, is to humbly receive it as a gift of grace from God himself. See, all the religions are not the same. At least we can say the world religions are superficially similar but fundamentally different. That's the best that we can say when we're talking about all the religions. Superficially, they might look similar but they are fundamentally different. Just like Panadol and arsenic pills look similar. They are both round and white, I believe, but at their core, they are fundamentally different. One will kill you. One will give you life. We have no alternative other than to try and weigh each religion and worldview responsibly. And I want to suggest that that is the path to true tolerance. True tolerance is not naively accepting everybody as equally valid and true. True tolerance is listening to each other, to seeking to understand each other and to love one another but being free to disagree with one another. That is true tolerance. So, which way? How do you know what is true? Which religion has grasped ultimate reality or none? Well, I want to suggest here is a good process that you might go through to try and be comfortable and content with whatever decision uh, you have made. Ask How does each worldview and each religion answer the four fundamental questions of human existence? Origins, where did we come from? Meaning, what's the point of life? Morality, what is the good life and what does that look like? And destiny, where are we all going? They're the four fundamental questions of human existence. How does each religion and worldview answer those questions and then test those answers in two ways? The coherence and correspondence test. You know what coherence is? Coherence. Is this worldview or world religion logical? Does it, is it rational? Does it make sense? 
and then correspondence. Does it correspond to what I see? Does it correspond to reality, to, to history, and to my observance of the world, to human experience? One of the weaknesses, I think, and this is not to put a slain on other religions in any particular way, but just by analysing it in this way, one of the weaknesses, I believe, of Islam is its correspondence to history, and particularly its historical claims about the person of Jesus. The Quran claims that Jesus did not die on a cross, that it just appeared that he did, but somebody else, Judas, died in his place, which is a complete reversal uh, of the Scriptures. But every other historical text, not just the New Testament, but Greek texts, Roman texts, Jewish texts, pagan texts, all say quite clearly that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was crucified on a Roman cross in about 33 AD. The Islamic texts are the only historical texts that claim otherwise. And so there is a correspondence issue that I think we must have at that point. Again, when it comes to, to Buddhism, I think one of the, the weaknesses of the Buddhist worldview is its correspondence with one of its chief core doctrines, the doctrine of desire. Buddhism says that the human mission is to rid yourself of all desire. But the reality is that is impossible to do. How do you tell a mother who is grieving the loss of her daughter, your problem is that you love your daughter too much? That doesn't fit with reality. Even the Dalai Lama had a great desire. Do you remember what it was? A free Tibet. Why did he desire that if he wants to rid himself of all desire? Atheism, I think, is weak in the correspondence test, particularly when it comes to suffering. According to the atheist worldview, suffering is a byproduct of evolution, a byproduct of survival of the fittest. So there's no point questioning why there is suffering. It just is. It's part of human evolution. But that fails the correspondence test because every human in history and still today asks the question when they are feeling pain, when they are feeling hurt. Why? We all have this longing for an explanation of it. But atheism has no explanation for it. It just is. I believe that Christianity is the only worldview that takes those four big questions, origins, meaning, morality, destiny, and gives answers that are coherent and rational and correspond to history and to experience and have stood the test of time. That's what I believe. But let me encourage you to do the hard work yourself to check it out yourself. Not just believe what you hear from Carl Sanderlands on KISS FM or what you read on some blog on the internet. Investigate the claims for yourself. And I think you will discover that Jesus is the way. Because at the heart of Christianity is not an idea or a feeling or even a way of life, but the heart of Christianity is a person the historical person of Jesus Christ and our relationship to him. Because the Bible presents Jesus not just as a teacher like Muhammad or Buddha or even Moses. Jesus came not just to give us new thoughts about God, new experiences with God or a new way of life for God. He came as God to us to bring us 
to himself. I don't know if you've got your Bibles opened, but in John 14, we hear Jesus himself saying this, where he says in verse 1 to 10 of John 14, Your heart must not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may also be. You know the way to where I am going. Lord Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus told him. All right, kids, have you got John 14, 6 open there? Can you remember the verse? All say it with me, mums and dads, grandparents included. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well done for not breaking out into song. Verse 7 continues, If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Lord Philip said, show us the Father and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been among you all this time without your knowing me? Philip, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus didn't come to teach us or to show us the way. Jesus came as the way. Jesus is the way. He lived the perfect life that no human could. He died the death that we all deserve for our imperfections. He rose again to guarantee new and eternal life. And he calls us to believe him, to trust our life to him. And that is so different to any other world religion out there. Most other world religions are about you and about your performance, about right thinking, about right feeling, about right actions, earning your way to paradise or to enlightenment. Most religions are me-centred, but Christianity is fundamentally at its core Jesus-centred. And far from being arrogant, Becoming a Christian is the most humbling thing that you could ever do in your life. Because when you become a Christian, you're saying, I can't think enough, I can't feel enough, I can't do enough to get my way to God, to ultimate spiritual reality. But that God has done it all for me in the person of Jesus. Now, I'm not denying that there are some proud and arrogant Christians out there. There may even be some in this room today. Nor am I denying that there have been some horrible things done in the name of Christianity. Of course, that has all happened and is true. But I still believe that of all the world religions at their core, Christianity stands above them all, particularly when it comes to having the greatest force for good in the world. None other taught their followers to lay down their life for the sake of others, to be generous, to serve, to forgive, even your enemies. And I think if you talk to a genuine Christian, someone who has had their life transformed by the love and grace of God in Christ, you can see that there is something in this Christian thing. There is something there. I was attracted to it as a 16-year-old by looking at the way my friend had changed over a period of time. And I think if you talk, if you're someone that's searching searching for God at the moment, not sure about whether this Christian thing is true, then spend some time with a Christian, a genuine Christian. 
And I think that you'll discover that Christianity is not just worth some research time. It's actually worth giving your life to. There are a billion paths to Jesus. But Jesus is the only path to God. I think if we had every Christian stand up here on the stage and give their testimony to how they came to know God in Christ, each one would be slightly different. But they would all confess the one reality, that Jesus is their great saviour, that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, that they now have not just forgiveness for their past mistakes, but they have a genuine hope, a sure and certain hope for the future that nothing else can give. And I hope that if you're one who is searching today, that you might find that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for who you are. And we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that we don't need to grope around in the darkness wondering what ultimate spiritual reality is because you have revealed yourself to us in Jesus Christ. And we can read about him in the scriptures. Father, if we are somebody here this morning who is searching for truth, searching for ultimate reality, please, by your spirit, draw us to your scriptures. Draw us to the person of Jesus. Open our eyes to see how marvelous he is and what a joy it is, not just to believe in him, not just to follow him, but to commit our whole life to him. And Father, if we are those that have already made that commitment, Refresh us today, encourage us that it's wise, not foolish to believe in Jesus, that we do have something that nobody else in our world has. Father, we thank you again for your grace. In Jesus Christ's name.